Lord, we just ask that you'd bless us today as we consider the end of this present study that we're going to come back to, Kings, and see the downward trend until they're finally carried away captive out of their own country, first to Assyria, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom to Babylon. What a sad tale, because they turned away from the Lord and they worshipped idols, the gods of the peoples round about them. And that's one of the things God hates more than anything is idolatry. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, he said. And so he punished them. He didn't want to, but he, he said, I'm not going to make a full end of you. So that's what we'll see next when we look at Revelation, how God is going to wonderfully restore Israel in their land. And I think maybe he's beginning it now. So it blesses as we consider the end of Second Samuel in Jesus' name. Amen. We start at chapter 21. We ended with, they wanted this rebel to have his head thrown over the wall. And that was Sheba, the son of Bichri, that was causing trouble. So then notice verse 23 of chapter 20. Joab was over all the army of Israel, so he was reinstated. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. These were mercenaries in the army. And Adoram was in charge of revenue. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Sheba was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was a chief minister under David. And the Hebrew means a Kohen, chief Kohen. So whenever you see that name Kohen, you know that they're chief officers of the king. Chapter 21, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Well, do you remember when they came across under Moses, they made a covenant with the people of Gibeon that pretended they'd come from a long way because they were wiping out all the people in the land and the Gibeonites were right on the list on the way to be annihilated. So they pretended to be from far country and they had moldy bread and they just fooled Joshua and he didn't ask the Lord. Remember when we saw that? He didn't ask the Lord what he should do about the Gibeonites and the Lord would have told him they're lying to you they're cheating you but anyway he made a covenant with them and once you make a covenant with the Lord you keep it and Saul didn't so he was going to wipe out the Gibeonites and so that's why the famine came that was a violation of this covenant so it's because of Saul this famine and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. See, they were the Canaanitish peoples that lived there. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And he said, Whatever you say, that will I do for you. 
So they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants, of Saul's descendants, be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul. And now Dr. Ryrie has a good note here. He said the Gibeonites demanded justice in keeping with the principle of Numbers 35. A life demands a life. In light of Deuteronomy 24, it's probable that the seven sons were directly implicated in the attack upon the Gibeonites. So Michael, who was the wife of David, died childless, but apparently she raised the five sons of her deceased sister Merab, whose husband was Adriel. Another explanation is that Michael is a copyist error for Merab. But however, this Rizpah, uh, the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons, not the Mephibosheth of Jonathan's son, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up. See, she never had any children, but she brought up these children for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. So he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest. And now Dr. Ryrie says this herb, barley harvest in April. So this, um, the daughter of Aya, this, um, she was not the wife, but she was a, what do you call them when they're not the wife? But anyway. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of the harvest, that would be April, until the late rains poured on them from heaven. That would be six months, this woman, this concubine, that's what I was trying to think of. I keep thinking because my neighbor made fun of somebody who was living with somebody and called it a porcupine. <laughs> when concubine comes up, but porcupine comes up, and I know that isn't the thing to say. But anyway, but this Rizpah was so faithful. She stayed there six months and didn't allow the birds of the air to rest on these bodies hanging there by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa, as Saul died. So he brought up the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish's father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that God heeded the prayer for the land. So after that the famine was stopped. So when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants, now this tells more of the exploits of David. David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, that would be Goliath's son, 
whose weight of the spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, he thought he could kill David, and he almost did. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, that would be David's sister, Zeruiah, and so Abishai is David's nephew. So his nephew Abishai came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushethite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. And again there was battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. See, now David slew Goliath, but he had all these relatives, see? So they have to get rid of all of them. Now these were half demon angel, evil angel and half human. So they were just extremely strong, extremely wicked. And you read about them in the sixth chapter of Genesis, where the sons of God, certain angels came in and cohabited with women. And it happened mostly in the Canaanitish land. And so it happened in this land that God gave to the Jewish people. There were giants in the land, but they pretty much got rid of them. Yet again was a battle in Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in numbers. So these were odd creatures. They weren't normal human beings. They were half fallen angel, half human, with six fingers on each hand. He was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, the brother of David, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Then David spoke this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. Now this is just about like Psalm 18, but this is what we find here at the end of the book of Samuel. The Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer. See, that's a wonderful one for us to claim. He's our rock. He's the rock of our salvation. He's our fortress and our deliverer. The God of my strength, in him I will trust. We need to pray that for America today, don't we? My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. This is the Hebrew word yasha, the Hebrew, and it's similar to Yeshua, which means Jesus. My Savior. So the name really is Jesus. So did they know about Jesus in the Old Testament? The word Joshua is the same word as Jesus, and this word is Yasha, so similar to Yeshua, Y-E-S-H-U-A, which means Jesus. So God is his stronghold, his refuge. So God is Jesus the Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death encompassed me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me and snares of death confronted me. Now this reminds us of all the trouble that Saul caused David when he hid in the caves of the earth and Saul was after him to kill him and would throw his sword at him. 
in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. Now, this may refer to a future day, too, and when the Jewish people are suffering so under the Antichrist. The earth shook, because we know in Revelation we're going to see terrible earthquakes. Now, there are earthquakes today, but there are going to be multiple earthquakes in multiple places at the same time. But then the earth shook and trembled. And I've written a future day, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Verse 10, he bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the earth were uncovered. Sounds like the flood of Noah, but it's probably going to happen again. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Talk about God's wisdom. This is exactly what it is. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. And I think of some ones in our government that thinks that they're so haughty and God will bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall lighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war. I love this from David. So that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Imagine that. So he must he could be very strong. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. I've underlined these things because notice what David says, God's gentleness, the fact that he's a gentleman, has made me great, David said. You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. 
I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. And I think, you know, I'll bet Netanyahu reads this, because among his own people, there are those who are rising against him. But notice the fact that he won this last election. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me, who subdues the people under me, who delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. You might want to check on Psalm 18 later on. We won't read it now. The last words of David. Now, this is an ode in chapter 23. Now, these are the last words of David. This is like Jacob's final blessing in Genesis 49 and Moses' final blessing in Deuteronomy. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Now this tells us about inspiration. And I've written a verse that I heard from Mrs. Munts years ago, First Chronicles, 28.3. Turn back just a little bit. First Chronicles 28.3. Because there's a wonderful little verse there. This wasn't the one I was thinking of. This says, but God said to me, this is God telling him, you shall not build a house for my name because you've been a man of war and have shed blood. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he's chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over all Israel. But that isn't the verse I was thinking of. Oh, here it is in 2819. 2819, where this is an Old Testament example of what the inspiration of Scripture is, the inspired word of God. The 19th, all this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. So this is how the Lord, the plans for making, having the temple, he couldn't build a temple. Solomon had to do it because David was a man of war. But he prepared all the wealth for it, all the gold, all everything, the jewels. Then at the end, knowing exactly what to do and what the temple 
the specifics of it. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. And then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God my God will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you've finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. So that one's better than 19 I should have written there. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. David's going to die, but how is this going to be an everlasting covenant from a descendant of David, which Jesus. Jesus is going to be the king forever over this earth, forever and ever. Right there, Second Samuel 7, where God made that covenant, Davidic covenant with David. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Now then, verse 8, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite. This, as I said, this eighth verse prophetically looks ahead to the kingdom and the rewards for faithfulness. So if you've been faithful to the Lord in whatever thing he's asked you to do, you'll be rewarded. See, he delights to reward his servant and say, well done, good and faithful slave. <laughs> so anyway, he was called Adino the Esnite because he killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose, Eliezer did, and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. So much blood he was just stuck to the sword. The Lord brought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the lentil field, defended it, and killed the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem, David's hometown. They'd already taken that. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. 
So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. They really took their lives in their hands in doing this and took it and brought it to David. Well, this, this so moved David that he wouldn't drink it, but poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, David's nephew, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three that we read about. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit, a real lion. These others were lion-like. But he killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. That's unusual, I guess, for Israel, but it was a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he didn't attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty, Elhanan, the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem, Shammah, the Herodite, Alekah, the Herodite, Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Anathothite. You know, there's who else was from Anathoth? One of the prophets. Jeremiah, no. He said, I'm a sycamore tree. Amos, maybe, from Anathoth. I think it maybe was Amos. You can check on that. Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekoa, Abiezer, the Anathothite, um, Mebunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Mahari, the Netophathite, Heleb, the son of Banna, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, from Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin, Beniah, a Pirathonite, Hidai, from the brooks of Gash, Albi-Abin, the Arbathite, Azimath, the Barhumite, Eliaba, the Shalbonite, of the sons of Jashan, and Jonathan, Shammah, the Herorite, Ahim, the son of Sharar, the Herorite, Eliphalet, the son of Elhasabai, the son of Machathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. So Ahithophel has a son, Eliam, who was, this would be Bathsheba's father, Eliam. And so Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. That's why he turned against David. But he was one of the mighty men. Hezri the Carmelite, Perai the Arbite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelak the Ammonite, Nahari the Berothite, armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zerariah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. The last one, doesn't that just get to you because David had him murdered and he took his wife, but yet he was one of the mighty men of David would do anything for him.
and he wasn't even a Jew. Again, the anger of the Lord was roused against Israel, and he moved David. Now, First Chronicles 21 says that Satan prompted David to do this, but the Lord allowed it, and the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David through Satan against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. It sounds like pride, doesn't he? He wanted to know how strong he was, how strong the country, how many soldiers they had. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundredfold more than there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Joab said to him. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. So Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan, camped in Ararur on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahim Hadshi. They came to Dan Jan and around to Sidon. Then they came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to South Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, it probably took six months or a year, they came to Jerusalem at the, well here it was nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done so very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. You know, this is a very famous place, the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. This is the very place that, that Abraham took his son to offer him. That same, same place. This is the same place that Solomon built the temple, and it's the same place that Jesus died on the cross. This same place. 
the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So this is on Mount Moriah, the hill of the region of Moriah where Abraham offered Isaac and where Solomon later built the temple and where Jesus died on the cross. So it's a very fascinating thing. When Solomon built the temple, he quarried out of this Mount Moriah. So here is Mount Moriah. And in the Easter book, I have a very dumb little drawing of it. But here's Moriah as it was. So Abraham trudged up, and that's where he didn't have to offer Isaac, but where he was going to. And then in Solomon's day, this is the part that David bought, but then in Solomon's day, he quarried it out to make room for the temple, which was from the top of this place, Mount Moriah, you look down south, not very far. There's a road there now and all the quarrying out that was where the temple was, but you can look right down and see the mosque there that today. That whole thing was one mountain, but now it's been quarried out to use the quarrying for building the temple. But also as you look, there's a path to walk up there and you walk up and in the quarrying process, it's a skull, exactly looks like the place of the skull. That is exactly where Jesus was crucified. And you can see it very plainly, the two eyes and those quarried out of that rock there. If there's nothing else to see in Jerusalem, that is a very important place to go and see. Right above that then is where Jesus was crucified. And then it's interesting that right below that to the north and west is the tomb where Jesus was buried the garden tomb. So right there is the garden of Gethsemane. The tomb is there and the top of it is. So you can see how they could take Jesus' body down and wrap it and put the spices and have everything in before sundown that same day, before the next day started. So it would be three days and three nights. So it's a very thrilling thing to see how God would orchestrate this into a place where it wouldn't be very far to take it just down the side of the hill into the tomb to be buried. All of that, I thought, was probably the highlight of my going to Israel. And when the angel 16 stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusites. Jebus was the name of Jerusalem before David took it over. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. He was a Canaanite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here I'll give it all to you. Look, here are our oxen for the burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. 
All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then David the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. That's a very important principle, isn't it? Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So Second Samuel closes with God being merciful to his land and to his people. Next week, we're going to start back here. So let's turn to Revelation. We'll just give it a little start to whet your appetite for future things. Not that you don't already know it all, but who knows it all? Because it's a living Bible. It's a living word. And it just speaks to you every time you, you look at it. Something new will pop up to you. It was written by John, the Apostle John. Rome hated him, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and there he saw this vision. And so what it is, is a revelation or an unveiling of Jesus, which God gave him. Let's just look at the beginning of it just a little bit. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants in this bond slaves, it's to show his servants, those that love him. See, now people that don't love him, they don't get anything out of Revelation. But it's written for those who love him, his bond slaves, things which must shortly take place. Now this means not in John's day, but when they begin to happen, the things that starting with chapter 6, they happen quickly, one, two, three, and it's all done very quickly in seven years. So these things which must shortly take place, or they will certainty they will come and happen. And he sent and signified it. Now that's an interesting word. God sent his servant and signified it. So you can expect to find a lot of signs here. Well, do we find signs all through the Old Testament? So that really you can understand Revelation by all the other books in the Bible, the sign language that's already there. So we see he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So it's a prophecy and you're supposed to read it out loud. It was to be read entirely at one time in the churches. That's what God wanted. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. What a blessing it would be if church services would maybe take three to read through this. Take the morning service and maybe the next week or the evening service and read through it verse by verse to the congregation. What a blessing that would be to them because that's what God said, blessed is he, there's a blessing if you read and hear the words of this prophecy. So, so it's, it's going to happen in the future and keep those things that are written in it. 
for the time is near. John is writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. Asia would be Turkey today. Written to these seven churches. Now there were more than seven, but seven is a sign number. It's a complete number. So seven means complete. So these seven churches represent churches down through the ages that would be like this. There are these seven types of churches today in our world. It's always have been these seven different types. Suffering church, missionary church, lukewarm church. We're going to see all of that. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now that's wonderful. If you, you know, to just meditate. He is. Is he living now? Yes, he's living up in heaven. He's sitting next to God the Father on his own throne. He is, and he was. We know that he lived, and he's coming back. Now, this isn't the wonderful promise. He's coming back, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the sevenfold Holy Spirit, and whether that's from Isaiah or not, but all the different aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. See, he's the first to rise from the dead. You say, oh, there were a lot of people that rose from the dead in the Bible. Never to die again, see. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he died again. So, but he's the firstborn, never to die. From Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. See, this is a prophecy. He hasn't ruled over the kings of the earth yet, has he? But I'm waiting for that day. Psalm 2, turn back there with me just a minute, because this fits right in with it. See, many of the scriptures fit right in with Revelation so that you understand it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Can you see kind of these things taking place today? Hating Christianity, hating the Lord, having false gods. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God to be ruling over us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Did you know that God laughs? So this is one verse that says that God sits in the heavens and laughs at these foolish human beings, the kings of the earth who are turning against him. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. He'll laugh, but then we're going to see the revelation, the wrath. That's really the wrath to come in the book of Revelation, starting chapter 6 and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king. Now this is prophetic future as far as God is concerned. Well, it's prophetic future for you. The minute you believed in Jesus as Savior, he already sees you in heaven, already up there with the new body, new everything. He sees you there. And this is the same thing. He said, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion, where Arana the Jebusites threshing floor was. In God's sight, it's already done. Now, it hasn't transpired yet. I have set my king. He will come on schedule. 
I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. See, that's exactly, he's going to rule the entire earth. That's what we read in Zechariah, all of the minor prophets and the major. Isaiah, they all talk about this, that Jesus will rule the whole earth. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with what? A rod of iron. David said, your gentleness has made me great. But that's one side of him. He also has, when he's mad, he's furious. He can laugh, but he has a time of wrath and this time of judgment. And so he said, when he does, he's going to break them with a rod of iron. And that we will read how he's going to do it in Revelation. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Just like throwing a precious cup into the cement and it just dashes in many, many pieces. Now therefore be wise, O king. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. In other words, pay homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Well, not many do today. We are in the minority. Did you know that? So back here, he will rule with a rod of iron the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Do you feel like a king and a priest? But that's what he says. You and I, we believers, have been made royalty because he is royalty. We're in union with him. And he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in Jesus, when you believed in him, not only did he see you already in heaven, but turn back just a little bit to Ephesians 1, where you see your position in Christ. And I have a CD by Dave Hunt that is simply wonderful called In Christ. This has to be a little book of assurance if there ever was one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, keep your finger back in Revelation, by the will of God to the saints. Now everyone who's a believer is a saint. You may not feel like one and you may not be canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. But God, the minute you believe in Jesus, all it means is you're a set-apart one. That's all that means, set-apart. To the saints who are in Ephesus, there were believers in Ephesus, and they'd been led to the Lord maybe by Paul, and now John was probably the pastor there, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's their position in Jesus. The minute you believe, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the plan of God, that he's blessed every believer with not physical blessings necessarily, but spiritual blessings. And we're going to see what they are in the heavenly places. This is our position in Christ. So... When you believe in him, he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And just as he chose us 
Now, if you leave out the in him, you have the reformed view. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's what the Presbyterians and all of them say. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Have you heard that? Well, if you haven't, you will, <laughs> probably. It's a five-point Calvinist. But notice it doesn't say he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. So we ask this question, how do I get in him so I can be chosen? Well, how do I get in him? I believe in him as my savior. And enter the plan. Enter the plan. So as he chose us in him. So every verse has in him, by him, through him, in the beloved. And if you leave that out, you have this other view, he loves me, he doesn't love me. He takes some in and he throws others out. But no, he takes in those who believe in his son. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Now see, when we believe in Jesus, he doesn't just leave us hanging there. He wants us to be holy and without blame before him. And then most people say there should be a period here. And then in love, having that should go with the fifth verse. In love, he's predestined us to adoption. And that predestination word, just take it apart. Pre means beforehand, doesn't it? Destiny. He has a destiny planned beforehand. Now, isn't that easy? He planned a destiny beforehand for those who believe in Jesus. Why write volume after volume of arguing on this when it's so simple? He's planned that having predestined us, he's planned before that when we believe in Jesus, we would be adopted into his family as sons by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted. How? In the beloved. So that's why I love that song. Do it again. I'd love to have you sing it. In the beloved, accepted am I, risen, ascended, and seated on high. See, already he sees us that way. So he's accepted us in the beloved. Who is the beloved one? That's Jesus, isn't it? So we're accepted by grace. You know, we don't deserve it. We don't work for it, but it's a gift. And see, now the Reformed people say that some people get the gift and others don't get the gift. That's not true. It's a free gift. The gift isn't salvation. The gift is just salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. See, he's very wise and very prudent, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. What is the mystery of his will? Well, that in the dispensation, so Paul was a dispensationalist, that in the dispensation or the period of time, God deals with man in certain areas of time, dispensation, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that would be on beyond where we are now, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. You see, someday all the believers he'll gather into one and we'll all be together with him throughout eternity. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, so Dr. Ironside was right, he has seven dispensations. Bob Thiem has five. 
Well, either one are fine. <laughs> but the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Notice he keeps stressing, underline, in him. In whom, he had same thing, we have obtained an inheritance. Uh-oh, we have spiritual blessing, we're elected, we have a destiny, we're adopted by sons, we've been redeemed through his blood, and now, to top it off, we have an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is this inheritance? That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, see, how are you saved? By believing. Having believed, you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the minute you believe, the Holy Spirit comes and seals you. Does that mean eternal security? Yes. Once you believe in Jesus and are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that's it. You may say, well, I'm sorry I did that. Too bad. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the Holy Spirit's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, Paul says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, praying what? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named. Not only in this age, Paul says, in the age in which he was, the church age, but in that which is to come. So there's some ages yet to come. We're in the church age right now. Then the kingdom age is coming and then the eternal time is coming. So there's still a couple more ages. And he puts all things under his feet and gave Jesus to the head of all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, next week we'll take the book of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, for your word from Old and New Testament. They just go together like hand and glove. So we thank you, Lord, and may we search things out and realize all the potential we have in Jesus. Thank you for him and for dying for us in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.